Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Zebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Zebrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. It is 80 years since the Holocaust began. The lessons we have learned in history is that we cannot forget what has happened. We cannot forget because of the victims, their persecutions, and their horrible deaths. We cannot forget because of the survivors who witnessed and lost so much. And we cannot forget because Jews and other victims were targeted for annihilation. And, and if we don't remember, if we choose to forget, it can happen again. Let's not fool ourselves. Anti-Semitism is all around us. The United Nations has designated Holocaust Remembrance Day to be on January 27th, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. With us today is a very special guest, a survivor of the Holocaust. Dr. Moshe Katz is author of Nine Out of Ten, and he's a well-known speaker who speaks extensively to all audiences about the Holocaust. Dr. Katz, it is with the greatest honor and appreciation that I welcome you to the definitive rap. Dr. Katz, I am a child of Holocaust survivors. My friends were children of Holocaust survivors. I grew up hearing about the atrocities. My earliest memories of adult conversation were centered around the Holocaust. And what is so tragically fascinating about this topic it is, is, is that as, as time goes on, more stories about death and survival become known. There is still so much that people do not know about the Holocaust. Dr. Katz, Please tell us about your upbringing. Where were you born and raised? And what was your family life before the Holocaust? Well, I was raised and born in Czechoslovakia in 1924, which makes me now approximately 99 years old. And everything was peaceful. We went to school. And we had a lot of friends, Jewish or not Jewish, and everything was normal, almost like here. Cannot compare it, but it was a democratic country, Czechoslovakia, where we didn't tolerate any discrimination. Everybody was equal. And as a young child, we went to so-called Cheder, which is a Jewish school. In the morning, in the afternoon, we went to school. At that time, there was a brand new school, a Jewish school. But I chose to go to public school because it was right next door from us. And as a six-year-old child, I was afraid to cross the bridge. And it so happened 
that when I was six years old, I lived to see the first anti-Semitism in my entire life. Somehow, the Czechoslovak government required everybody to have citizenship papers. But since my father was born in Poland and my mother was born in Hungary, it was very hard for us to become citizens. So they had to change their name in order to show some kind of local residence around 25 years before. So they changed from Kastner, which originally was her name, Katz. I was six years old and the teacher calls out the names and says Katz. I says that, which means I'm here. Yes. Kastner, I'm here. Oh, you bad guy, you want to cheat the government? You probably want to take two times welfare, and you have never heard of something like this. Shame on you. I was starting to cry, and I wanted my sister, she was the third grade. She came down, and she came to the principal, and the principal told me, didn't I tell you in the morning that the court order have a copy of it, that the name is changing legally. Oh, I forgot. So I didn't want to go back to school. I waited another year, and I went to the Jewish school, which was full of peace, and we had the elementary school there, and we didn't realize anymore anti-Semitism. After that, there was no high school. They had to public school. And there was the same thing. The first year, we had a Jewish class, non-Jewish class, a mixed class. So I went to the Jewish class. And the teacher, Mr. Palechleb, come in and said, I feel the smell, open the window, was this is a Jewish class. And he couldn't do nothing about it. And he made sure on Friday about the shades that we shouldn't see when Shabbos is. Because across the street there was a family who lit candles in the window. We should see when to stop writing. He forced us to write even after it was candle lighting because school was up to five o'clock. Again, we faced a lot of anti-Semitism and finishing the uh, public school at age 13. Already we went away to a yeshiva and finished the school at age 13. And in the yeshiva, we learned only Jewish 
Talmud and Chumash and other things. And then I came home after six months to change yeshivas again because I needed higher education. And again, everything was all right. And we grew up and at 14, I went to another yeshiva and suddenly the war broke out in 1938. So this was in Carpathian Rus, part of Czechoslovakia, and came a new government and said that anybody who wasn't born in that circuit must go home. So they deport us home and all education stopped at age 14. Now, a new government came in, the Hungarians occupied our land, and after about five or six weeks, I was walking peacefully in the street, and a bunch of pilots accosted me and started to beat me and pulled out one of my players. I had players, and pulled out one of my players and beat me up. And uh, I went to the barber and said, I want to straighten out. Oh, I can't do it unless I get permission from your father. I called my father. He says, okay, you can't run around like this. And after that, all my face wearing was finished because I was afraid to be identified yeah. as a Jew. And we weren't wearing yarmulkes because we were afraid that people will see we are Jewish, so we are kept like Gentiles and everything was okay. And as the war came, new and new uh, laws pushed on us little by little, but we kept, we said, okay, now we know what we have to do. So I'm going to jump a few years and finally, March 19, 1944, the Germans invaded Hungary, and now a new life started. First thing, we had to wear the yellow star. And the next thing was we have to surrender the bicycles, the telephones, any communication we had to surrender. So we lived with that. Now, government, the local government says, you know what? If you give up gold, your necklaces and everything else, up to 45 pounds, then the city will be saved from any harm. Believe them. For their gold, they waited up, they said more, and this is how we were fooled all the time, believing that everything would be fine. Finally, on April the 20th, 1944, they say, starting 9 a.m., no Jews could go on the street. And this was seven o'clock when we went to school. So 
show the signs people ran home and finally they started to say what are we going to do what are we going to do now it's too late somehow my parents were organized start to send away their children to different hiding places we had a lot of Christian families and uh, somehow we had 10 children and my mother left me to the end and said to me, if you're going to observe the Sabbath and not go to eating anything but what's permissible, you're going to survive. And this is my whole image that I always had my mother in my mind. And so I had a very, very good place to be among Gentile people, a lawyer, prepared a room for me, a bathroom, which will be enclosed. Nobody will see that. And everything will be all right. Meanwhile, my mother realized that she didn't give me anything to wear. So she had an idea. She made a package of clothing and sent with my younger brother. And my younger brother was stopped by a policeman saying, where are you going? It's a quarter to nine. So my brother opened up a big mouth and said, I have a right to go until nine o'clock wherever I want. Oh, smart, grabbed him and arrested him already. Meanwhile, they found out that this was arrested. So they were afraid that I will be, he will tell police where I'm hiding. So I had to leave that place. And luckily, Stoyer had a farm and he told me go to the farm. I, in the farm for a day or two, then he will take me into real hungry, where the Jews still had some kind of a freedom. But one day, it came another day, and another day, meanwhile, he took over my sister, my other sister, and they, they recognized him already, where are you going, Kamsi? So he couldn't take me, and from one day, two days became three months in the farm, and meanwhile, there was another bunker in a wine cellar where 20 Jews were hidden, including one of my younger brothers. And uh, on the ground, told me that I must supply them every second day with bread. Us food meant bread didn't care about it. As long as we have bread, we have everything. So the manager of the farm helped me to purchase bread. And I used to go there every night and go provide them with the bread. And the man who supplied them every second day was also a Gentile. And he had hidden five children and the parents and 
on an attic in his barn. And some of our shouts fell down, crying. Police came and they took him away. I saw in the newspaper that this man was arrested. So I was afraid that he's going to tell about that hiding place. I went there and got out my brother and another young girl called Rifter Cohn, married to Mortress Spielman here, and two more people escaped, and the 16 people were taken away, never heard of them again. So this is the local thing, and I luckily had already in Budapest, which was already also taking the Jews, but they, they lived as non-Jews, and they decided, well, they decided to take out my parents and my brothers from the ghetto. And somehow they met a German officer and they tried to bribe them. He said, okay, and got all the information, gave him some money, and then they raided the place and said this was a setup. And they took my sister into the guest chapel and beat her and everything there. She took the money and he helped her and everything else. And after from jail, she escaped again. So she worried about myself and my younger brother and the father. So the Germans decided to go house to house looking for Jews. That time was more important for them to catch Jews hiding than winning the war. Winning the war was something else. This was their job. And the local people was helping them because there was already non-sugar available for oil or nothing. Somebody caught a Jew or told the police where a Jew is hiding, get two pounds of sugar. So they did that. When my sister came out to bribe another German, came to the farm and took us out from the farm by train, and we went to the capital city. That was easier to go around because it's a big city, and you get lost somehow. And many things happened. My sister had friends, and somebody gave us a job in a garage, was preparing German trucks and cars which came from the front to repair. Somehow we got, my brother and I got a job. We didn't know how to fix cars. But we knew how to take off tires, how to clean the cars. The job was a good job. Heidi was investing German stamps into three like anybody else. Yeah. Bus or other thing, we were doing anything we had. But 
more Jews were hiding. So each time when we find out somebody's hiding, we try to help them because we were able to go on the street and anything we wanted. So something happened at the garage where notified the garage, two cars be repaired or blown up. So they suspect there is some communists or Jews who were planting the bomb. So we had to leave that place, luckily, and change your name, change your address, everything fine. So again, we had a friend, Mr. Hugo Schwartz, and he was older, and he took us under his care and said, oh, there's advertised in a supermarket. They're looking for a, a person who has a experience in groceries. I went there and I got the job. So I had plenty of food and everything that I wanted. Now on Thursday, I had off and the manager of the store decided and said, why are you so sad all the time? But a smile comes out of this. This is no good for customers. So I told him I'm Jewish. Okay, so you're Jewish. I wouldn't hurt you. Five, he's also Jewish. She's in hiding. So just keep smiling and everything will be all right. How could I smile? Every time I had in my mind, where is my father? Where is my mother? They took my youngest brother, my older brother. And all the brothers and sisters were spread around all over Europe. So I always had worries. But one good thing that he helped me had food. Then I had other side things. I had two little orphan cousins, and I tried to get into homes to Catholic orphanage, but they didn't have food. So I told them I'll bring them food. And once we needed clothes because we had no clothes, it was the same very a second class uh, clothing store for most clothing and my younger brother sees a police uniform it will fit me and he wore a police uniform a police cap and we always went somehow together uh, they look of me as I go with a policeman, so I must be all right. And on Thursday, I took a basket of food, of food to the orphanage. Coming out, two detectives come over here. I saw you a few times going into the nurse, to the Catholic home. What do you do, black marketing? I says, no, I bring 
deliver food for them. And she better come with us. So my brother so came over to them and says, this is my guy that I look in. So you better give him to me. He didn't care. He was happy to get rid of me. So my brother saved me. And more and more uh, episodes went through where it's hard to talk about it. And I want the public to know how hard it was to survive even among Christians. About 90% of the population very happy what happened to the Jews. That was about 10% sympathizer, tolerated, and some of them also helped. So uh, one day, we were always looking for supplies. We surrounded block, pushed everybody into a school yard, and there, documentation. The problem was already there. They were so desperate to catch Jews who were already on their neck. They saw they losing the war. They realized but killing the Jew is still going on. So they lined up women, men separate, and there was no more trucks or buses or trains. Everything was bombed. So the Germans decided they will take the Jewish people by walking toward Austria. And they lined up Jews, women and men, up to 42 years old. And they took away their children, saying, you come back to get back your children. Meanwhile, the Germans had a policy. No working, no food. But they couldn't get any food for children. They decided they would take them to the Danube River, throw them into the river. At that time, I lived then in the other side of the city. And I live on the right by the Dunau River. And I saw 10 o'clock at night, truck clothes and truck clothes of Jewish children being thrown into the river. And those who tried to swim out, they put handcuffs on them together. You shouldn't be able to see them. If you go to Budapest now, Still, all the shoes they were wearing. She lost the shoes, Jewish children's shoes. As of today, they put it in brands so you shouldn't rat. Remember what happened. And this is another story that I heard. It's a story that I saw with my two eyes. And how could you live in hiding? See so many people. These are children. So I didn't know how to pray anymore. I said, God, please save me. Please save me. 
my mother said that I would stay alive and made a promise if I survive to be built schools and I'll be busy creating new lives for children. That's what I did when I came to America. Started new schools and today, thank God, which I started, girls' school, which is here in Farakove, has 1,825 children. A boys' school has 600 children. Another school has 400. And I did what I promised. So time came of liberation and was January. 1945, the Russians arrived at the outskirts of Budapest. And my sister was more learned, she was older. She advised us to move in that district. Luckily, they were the first one liberated by the Russian army. And now the Russians afraid of spies. They didn't trust anybody except to find the Jewish person. They trusted him because they knew that the Jews were persecuted by the Germans and they were their enemies. And so they gave me all the bread, all the whatever there is, and somehow I went to the, to the street to look for my sisters. Meanwhile, they collected all the people, regardless who they are, pushed in a yard, and they're going to take them to Russia, prisoners. Because the Russian propaganda said that they, they got hold of 5,000 prisoners. I know they had to supply the prisoners. So I was caught again in a situation. So I went over to the man in charge. I said, I'm Jewish. I don't know what I'm doing here. So he said to me, I can't let you out. Six o'clock, change, and I'll take you out with me. I'm also Jewish. Now, Going to talk just after the war. After the war, I found my two sisters, and we were already four of us. Now I go home and try to put together things. And first things, I want to go to the family who helped me. See, oh, the lawyer's wife says. He took away John because he was a member of City Hall. And he is in this, in this soccer field waiting for a group to be taken to Siberia. So I go there and meet with the uh, fellow who is in charge of it, a Russian uh, officer. I tell him these people help me. People are very important people. 
can't pick up no, nobody. No, I'm looking for the people from the farm who helped me. So they were evacuated about 20 kilometers from here. So I go and visit them. They were already in Slovakia. And starting to cry, they took away the men. The Russians took away the men. And the camp is about 10 miles from there. I should try to get them out. So I go to the camp and I tell the guys I want to see who is in charge. Took me to the general, close the door, what's the problem? I tell him I'm Jewish. So he says, How do I know that you are Jewish? You speak Yiddish? Yes. What do you want? I said, there is some Christian people here that helped me during the war to save my life, and I would like to let them out. Okay. Goes in two soldiers, says, let them go pick up all the people that he wants to. Put them on a wagon, about four people, and I go back to the family, and Oh, they forgot Uncle Yeah. I go back again. You had your choice, finish. That's all. I can't let out nobody. Mm -hmm. So, this is how I helped them after the war. When I came to America, I was in touch with them. Now, after almost 80 years, I'm still in touch with them as the grandchildren. And you have no idea the powerful that goes on in those little towns. No running water. So many years after the war, they have old houses like it was a thousand years ago. And any little help given is appreciated. And now, I'm in America, the land which you people cannot imagine how lucky you are that you weren't born here. You live in this country, although there is anti-Semitism and there is certain things that it's not right, nowhere in the world that everything is right. It is the best country in the world that you can imagine. I could testify because I was in Russia, I was in Hungary, I was in Romania, I lived in France for a year, I was in Yugoslavia, and I was in Germany, and I would testify that this is the best country in the world. I have never seen a country like this. Here, for instance, you see an empty store, Talk to the owner, gives you the key, you make a lease, and you have a store. The next day you are in business. In Europe, you cannot do that. You need a license for everything. When you go for a license, you don't know who you are, you don't know where you were born, and what you're doing here. Nobody asks you nothing. 
it would become a store and then I had a supermarket here, my brothers, and now I go back to Europe for a while. How do we find each other? There are 10 children. Everybody was around except my, one of my older brothers who had married already and he had two children. He couldn't run because having children and a wife is a baggage. He cannot run. So he surrendered and went to Auschwitz. Believing that arriving there, he will help his wife. So he told you all kinds of stories. You will be there reunited. You have a family life. Don't worry about nothing. And everybody believed everything because we never heard the word out. We never knew. Dr. Katz. I've, I've always wondered about people who, when they were in Europe, while all this was going on, um, when did you become aware that the situation was so dire and dangerous for Jews that they are being deported to their deaths? What, what were you told when people were being deported? What was we known to never, you? We never knew the situation because the newspapers we had no radio, took away the radios, and the newspapers were controlled by the government. There was never an article that something happened to the Jews, because if you would have a radio, then a foreign country like London, uh, immediately they will kill you, right. if you shouldn't be able to. People on the street, if you were three people talking, you were considered spies. Uh, you, you are thinking of something to do something. So they arrested you for that. Two people would walk. People would be together together. The school were afraid of spies. You understand? And it was impossible to know anything because nobody ever came back. Right. So right. How, how would we know? Right. No one knew anything. Except, right. Except later on, we found out. But at that time, it was too late. Even there was nothing we could do. We cannot. No country would let us in. America wouldn't let us in. Canada wouldn't let us in. There was only... One country who opened the door was the Dominican Republic, who allowed Jews to come in there. And Hitler allowed them to go because he, in 1942, he had no idea the Jews would be He opened the door. Even as early as 1936, he said, Anybody wants to go, let go. And they made a pact with the Israeli local government, not with the British, the Jewish for Shachnut. And 60,000 Jews from Germany 
were able to leave and arrive to Israel. They are still stand and they will go Kiryat Matskin next to Haifa, to the matters of Haifa. The houses are still there and their descendants are still there. So 60,000 Jews today created about a quarter of a million Jews which were saved because of that. Some Jews, even they couldn't run, they wouldn't run there too. What would a 50-year-old man do somewhere? No language, uh, no relatives, government wouldn't let him in. Suddenly, all the governments became anti-Jewish. Yeah. Like in Cuba, it was a pretty good government. And then a ship with 929 people arrived in Cuba, and a men. So the ship came to America and begged Roosevelt to let them in. And Mrs. Roosevelt begged her husband, let them in. No, no, they had to go back to Germany and to the European countries. Before they were invaded, they wouldn't let back the Jews. They made a deal that England will take 25%, France will take 25%, Holland will take 25%, and Belgium will take 25%. Nobody wants us. Right. Their own citizens they wouldn't take back. And the only people who survived for in England, the rest were taken away. Yeah, yeah. There was no communication. Nobody knew nothing. Right. There right. was whispering. Yes. Nobody knew nothing. Some people from Poland ran to us and told us what's going on. People didn't believe. People just didn't believe. Yeah. And Dr. Katz, we're running out of time. Uh, just one yeah. last question. Um, your book, Nine Out of Ten, uh, why did you give it that title? Because we were 10 children and nine survived. So that's why I gave that title, Nine Out of Ten. Nine Out of Ten Children. And uh, in, in your book, you give an account of what you've experienced, the yeah. atrocities and what you've witnessed as well. Is that, um, is that right? I don't want to uh, show off, but my book was sold, 6,000 books were sold. And this is the highest uh, number of Holocaust books which were sold. Uh, people are tired of that. Don't want to listen to that. People in America want to have happiness. They want to read happy books in a book that has no uh, excitement of either love or killing, is not solved here. This is the problem always. We don't want to hear, the people don't want to hear. So, 1962, nobody wants to hear nothing. When I went to the Eichmann trial, Israel, and I came back, they wanted to listen. Because then all the newspapers, and televisions were showing 
something about a Holocaust. So finally I was invited to and started talk in school. I was teaching different schools. I was invited to a lot of places, but only the Eichmann trial brought out the Holocaust. But right. the last 10 years, we forgot again. They're not interactive. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Katz, it is said that a person who survived the Holocaust has the power to give blessings to others. In fact, uh, the first Satma Rebbe, Rebbe uh, Yoel Teitelbaum of Blessed Memory, said that too. Dr. Katz, please give our audience and all of us a blessing. Well, my blessing is to everybody should never taste any prosecution because that's the worst thing which happens. It happens slowly and people don't think it's serious. You have to be aware that we are not in your own country. You are tolerated and you have to be in one way thankful to be in this country, the greatest country. I thank this country that it helped me survive after the Holocaust. And I build a family. And you believe it or not, I have today 123 members of my family who were born here. Grandchildren, children, great-grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren. God bless America. Thank you. Dr. Katz, thank you for your time on the definitive wrap and for giving us this legacy to pass on to future generations. We will never forget. We will always keep the memory of the six million plus alive. As Elie Wiesel said, to forget the dead would be akin to killing them a second time. Dr. Katz, I have no words more, I don't have more words of gratitude to express for being with us here today. It, it's beyond words of gratitude. Thank you to Venus and to our audience for tuning in. And I thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.